Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. So this morning's sermon is about the new birth, being born again. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, they cannot see or enter the kingdom of God, I can't help but go back in my mind to my first close encounter with new birth. Our oldest daughter, Rosalie, she, she's eight now. Um, when she was born, she was two weeks overdue, and we had been, kept pushing it back. They kept wanting us to, we're like, no, just give it a little more time. But finally, they said, no, you, you may, you must be induced. So Jenny came in 7 a.m. to the hospital to start the induction. It's around 7, right? Yeah, details. And after a long day, like really long day, especially for me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's a really long day and lots of Pitocin. Things finally began to pr- progress a little bit late in the evening. And then at last in the wee hours of the morning, Rosalie was, was born in the dark of night. And I remember the hospital room was illumined by the single bright light over the bed. And upon her arrival, the midwife held Rosalie there for a moment. It was like Simba over Pride Rock. Just, you know, and time just stopped for a moment. I was kind of weak in the knees, and there she was, bright and new. And I I, I heard people speak of the miracle of birth before that moment, but now I got it. Wow. My wife had built a human being in her womb, and and what have I ever done? (laughs) Nothing. That was incredible. So witnessing this four times has brought a new level of appreciation for Jesus' teaching here. You must be born again. Maybe I can't quite appreciate it, quite like a mother who's given birth can, but just witnessing this miracle four times. So let's look at new birth. Namely, let's look at the who, the what, and the how. Who, who is the new birth for? What is it? And how does it happen? So who's the new birth for? When you hear born-again Christian, what comes to mind? What populates? Might be some different stuff. Perhaps a, a drug addict who meets Jesus, quits cold turkey, never looks back. These, these radical conversion stories. That's a born-again Christian. Perhaps it's Ned Flanders. The always smiling, just nice guy who's out of touch with reality a little bit. Some of you, you know, think of born-again Christians as a fundamentalist. Many people think of born-again Christian as just code word for fundamentalist, right-wing, political zealot. The others, maybe on the outside of the church, who have no really associations with Christianity or Christ, maybe their only touch point is Hillsong, Hillsong United, you know, big arena, big band, tight pants, fog machines, hands lifted in the air, you know, really emotional, all kinds of things come to mind when we hear born-again Christian. Now, in this story, the man in view is Nicodemus. We know a little bit about him through his three appearances in John's Gospel, this one, and then there's two more. We know he's the leader of the Jews. We know he's a Pharisee. We know he's a teacher of Israel. So here's this wealthy man, a reputable man, a highly educated man, a religious leader of leaders. We might think today of a famous Christian pastor. He's got a PhD, authored dozens of books, His ministry is held in high honor, and Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Kind of a shocking thing to say. So the new birth into life in Christ is for everyone. For the drug addict, yes, and for the teetotaler. It's for the Ned Flanders of the world and for the Bart Simpsons of the world. It's for the right wing and the left wing zealots. It's for the young and the old. It's for the image obsessed and the outdated. It's for sentimental. It's for the intellectual. It's for everyone. But Nicodemus reminds us, us in this room, we who are comparatively wealthy, we who are comparatively educated, who are comparatively religious, that we too need the new birth. 
If anything other than new birth would suffice, Nicodemus had it, didn't he? But it won't. The new birth is for everyone who has been born of the flesh, that is to say, everyone. As Augustine once taught, the problem with humanity is not that we sin, but that we are in a state of sin that needs a comprehensive solution. So in verse 6, when Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, he's alluding to the biblical view that physical birth and spiritual birth are not the same. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is the spirit. And this is the bleak news before the beautiful news. We are born into spiritual death. We are born physically, but we are born into spiritual death. If it ever was a contentious thought, then it probably is less so now if you're in touch with reality. You know, unless you are impossibly sheltered from from the world and from your own brokenness, you can't help but look around in you or out there and see this truth. It's, It's written upon the lives of billions who have suffered trauma and an unspeakable hardship. Maybe some of your own comes to mind. It's written upon the streets of Ukraine right now and other places that are war-torn, full of bombs and bodies and blood. It's written upon the lips of the powerful who lie and scandal and cheat in order to line their pockets. Corruption. But Nicodemus reminds us that it isn't just the irreligious out there who are spiritually dead. It's, it's the religious who can be spiritually dead. One commentator puts it this way. The transformation offered to Nicodemus opens the question of the nature of true religion. That is, religion is not necessarily a matter of personal knowledge or ethical behavior, which Nicodemus had, nor is it fidelity to religious traditions, which Nicodemus had, no matter how virtuously they evoke a higher ethical religious behavior among us. Jesus is claiming that true spirituality is not discovering some latent capacity, latent capacity within the human soul and fanning it into flame. It's not uncovering a moral consciousness. It's, it's not a horizontal experience that takes the materials of this world and shapes them into this religious impulse. Rather, Jesus claims true religion is vertical. It has to do with God's spirit overwhelming, transforming, fully converting us. That's the new birth. So to summarize all that simply, Jesus did not come to make us good people. He came to make us new people. He didn't come to make us more religious. He came to make us entirely new New creations in Christ. That's the offer, and it's for you, it's for me, it's for everyone, for the religious, for the irreligious, and everyone in between. So that's who it's for, but what is it? Nicodemus, quite understandably, is taken back. In verse 4, we read, How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus, being a scholar, was a very literal man. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of spirit. And these words should have sent old Ezekiel, this Old Testament scholar, they should have sent his mind to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 25, where God promises a new birth. And it's likely that Nicodemus had this memorized, which may be why Jesus rebuked him later for not getting it. Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. Sounds like a new birth, doesn't it? I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Jesus' gentle rebuke of Nicodemus' lack of knowledge may be anchored in this promise. I mean, surely he'd studied these words. How couldn't he see it coming? What is the new birth then? Like the wind, Jesus says. We know it primarily through its effects. So we begin to answer, what is the new birth, by answering, what does it do? What does it actually look like to be born again? 
And the context of Ezekiel, I brought us there to highlight two things. The new birth kind of has a backwards-facing and a forward-facing effect. Now, the, the, the backwards-facing effect is this. The new birth cleanses us from sin. Spiritually speaking, our, our, our idolatry, our, our hatred, our, our lust, our exploitation of others, our gossip, our self-centeredness, our violence, our anger, we could go on and on, greed, sloth, these, these things drag our souls through the mud, so to speak. They leave us soiled, and they leave us stained, and they leave us spiritually stuck, sort of like in, encrusted with all manner of things, miserable attachments just weighing us down. I will sprinkle you clean with water. I will cleanse you, says God through Ezekiel. And Jesus, you must be born again by water and spirit. We can't help but note the allusion to baptism here. I don't think that's the main point. But what does the new birth do? It offers the freedom of a cleansing forgiveness. The soul is marked now by this blessed assurance of Christ's cleansing. I am clean not because I am clean, but because I am clothed with Christ. You know, these robes, I often remind you, you could wear them if you'd like. These white robes testify to this fact. Because of my baptism and my faith in Christ, my, though my sins be like scarlet, I am white as snow. I'm cleansed. That's what the new birth produces in the soul, this, this deep awareness that I've been forgiven and cleansed. I've been freed from the shame and the power of sin. They say, you know, if, you, if you've been born again, then this resonates with you, these words of St. Ambrose. I will not glory because I am righteous, but because I am redeemed. Not because I am clear of sin, but because my sins are forgiven. And you feel something in you say, amen. My sins are forgiven. How beautiful. So that's the backwards-looking thing. What's the forward-looking thing? The new birth gives us new affections. Ezekiel 36, I will put a new heart in you, a new spirit in you, cause you to walk in my statutes. So before Rosalie was born, she was in darkness. After, there was light. Her birth then came with all kinds of new appetites, didn't it? Milk. She was hungry. New longings, she longed for warmth, new affections, her mother's face. The same is true of spiritual birth. The soul now longs for God's word as milk. One of the things that always marks new believers when you see someone come to trust Christ is there's a hunger for God's word. It marked my young, young conversion at, at, in seventh grade. I just wanted to sit around and read the Bible all summer. So the soul begins to long for God's word as milk. And then the soul begins longing for God's presence as the warmth of a mother's embrace. And then you hear your heart begin to say, seek his face. And the mind responds, your face, Lord, I will seek. It begins to be this hunger, this thirst for the things of God. That's evidence of the new birth. And then the sin that, that previously overwhelmed the heart begins to get displaced by these new affections. I say begins because newborn babies are not instantly mature, are they? It, it takes decades. Rosalie didn't come out of the womb saying like, no, Father, you take the milk. You're thirsty. Like, like it's, it's just normal for a baby to be needy and immature, Right? It takes time, decades for them to mature. Our Lenten reading, that we're, they're, we're, the book we're reading during Lent, Interior Freedom by Jacques Philippe. Hopefully, hopefully you've seen the reading plan. It's a really beautiful book. It says that we are both free to be sinners and free to become saints. Jacques Philippe makes this point because when we are newly born as God's children, God does not demand instant maturity from us any more than I expected Rosie to come out of the womb wise and selfless. We have freedom to be sinners because we are in process. We're in process of maturing. God's love for us throughout this process is fixed, it is secure, it is complete, it is never in doubt. Ash Wednesday reminded us of this truth, did it not? That we're dust. He knows our frame. You know, uh, as one song says, we're not letting him down because we're not holding him up. You know, God's not disappointed in you because he never had any illusions about you to begin with. 
He knows your dust. He knows you're immature and in process. So we have this freedom to just accept ourselves as we are. And yet, we also have freedom to become saints, to grow up. God's love is like this nourishing milk, this nourishing food that enables us to grow. So, Philippe summarizes. It says, The right attitude toward God, then, is having a very peaceful, very relaxed acceptance of ourselves and our weaknesses. How many of you can say that? I accept myself and my weaknesses. As well as an immense desire for His holiness, a strong determination to mature based on the limitless trust in God's grace. So we begin with new birth, yes, and in time our loves will be reoriented entirely, but we're in process. Now look at Nicodemus. The same Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night for fear of being associated with Jesus is later seen in John 19 boldly, lovingly, generously, in the full light of day, tending to the burial of Jesus along with Josephus. He's been transformed. Have you guys seen The Chosen? Some of you I know have. This scene is really powerful. I haven't, I've only watched the first season, but the scene with Jesus and Nicodemus, go watch it this week if you haven't seen it. I think it's a really beautiful depiction of the conversation. So, what have we said? God doesn't just want to make us good. He wants to make us new. He's making us new. And we know the new birth by its effects. We're cleansed from sin. We're given new affections. But we have to understand its origins, too, to really understand what it is. Where does the new birth come from? We might join in the chorus of Sunday school children everywhere. Where does the new birth come from, kids? Jesus. And, okay, yes, let's, let's press a little deeper. Why would believing in Jesus bring new birth? Sometimes I'm tempted to read believing simply as, like, intellectual assent. And so if I agree with this thing, then I get the new birth. I've earned it somehow by having the right thought. You know, it's like, why, why does it make sense that believing in this dude gives me new birth? It's a little confusing. To write this wrong and understand what the new birth is, we, we must understand where it comes from. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The second most highlighted scripture according to Amazon. Amazon tracks your highlights if you're reading. Does anyone want to guess what the first one is? Psalm 23 is probably close, but the first one is actually be anxious about nothing. But this is the second most highlighted scripture, John 3.16. And the key words here, eternal life. What is Jesus promising? This is where we see actually the origin of the new birth. The ultimate trajectory of the new birth, eternal life. As so often the case, the Bible Project says, it, says it's best. So let's, let's just, short clip from the Bible Project that's going to explain what eternal life means. I appreciate that they translate has eternal life rather than have. It emphasizes the reality of the present moment. But this explains why this isn't just an arbitrary intellectual belief. It's that the life of God is in Christ. He is life. When we, when we look to him, as we're about to see, eternal life is ours now in him. The new birth comes from Jesus. It comes from the future. It's almost like reaching into the future and pulling it back into the present. And what's true there is now partially true now, awaiting its fullness. But last, we have to answer how. How does this happen Jesus closes his conversation with Nicodemus with yet another Old Testament throwback. He sends Nick's mind back to Numbers 21. And there's Israel after the Exodus and their disobedience. They're in the wilderness. And God's people are being bitten by serpents. And the venom of the snakes makes, like, it makes physical what is already true spiritually. It's like venom physically matches the spiritual venom of their sin, their disobedience. 
They're rejecting God's deliverance. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They're longing for the slavery of Egypt. And God prescribes this very strange solution, if you know the story, telling Moses to build a bronze snake on a pole and lift it up in the sight of the people. And everyone who looks on the snake is going to be saved. So the Son of Man must be lifted up, says Jesus. And this is code for Jesus being lifted up on the cross where Jesus becomes the sin of his people. You know, of old, the call has always been simply to look and trust. This is the Romans reading. Abraham trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The people were dead in sin, too spiritually sick to get up and and, and pilgrimage to the statue and grovel before it or light incense or spend hours rubbing it and praying and bowing down. No, they simply had to look and God would do the rest. Looking at Jesus means recognizing that I I don't need more religion in the bad sense. I don't need more... You know, I don't need to learn more or make more or perform more or be better. I don't need to be better. I need to be new. And I'm not capable of affecting my own birth, am I? Rosalie didn't make it happen. It was a gift given to her, the new birth. So it's ours to receive, not do. This is the good news. You don't need to strive. You need only to look to Jesus and trust. Receive the gift of his cleansing forgiveness Receive the new heart that he wants to give you. Receive him who is eternal life. And if there's anyone who maybe has never done that, I want you to join me in praying. Well, even if you already have, please join me in praying. Lord, we are children. And we're just aware, I'm aware of how often I'm still immature and in process. Would you give us patience and grace with ourselves and with one another as we're in process? And yet, would you give us a vision of the good life with you, eternal life, life unto the age? There's no more tears and no more selfishness and no more greed and no more exploitation. And that we would live into that even now in our relationships and our neighborhoods. And if anyone's hearing the sermon and hasn't yet looked to you and trusts, might they? Would you stir in their heart that they would long for the new birth, that they would long for you, for the cleansing forgiveness, for the new affections to displace the old? Lord, we're so grateful for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.